Hello and welcome back to the Future of Figure Skating. This is a special episode rebroadcasting the live discussion we held on August 2nd with Anything GOE. We discussed the classic book, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, The Making and Breaking of Elite Gymnasts and Figure Skaters. Lois and I talked with the author, Joan Ryan, and Olympian Caitlin Weaver. You can also watch the video archive of the conversation on the Anything GOE's YouTube page. Welcome everyone to the first uh, off-season book club that we are doing with Anything GOE uh, in collaboration with the Future of Figure Skating podcast. Over the last few weeks, we have been reading Little Girls in Pretty Boxes and having a small discussion on our Discord channel, and that's been really nice. And so thank you to everybody who has joined us in that conversation. But today we get to be joined by Joan Ryan, the author of Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, and Caitlin Weaver, who um, is a many times decorated uh, figure skating champion, who I think we all know and are very grateful to have with us today to share her perspectives as well. Um, before we get started, I did just want to give a little bit of a bio um, for our folks and also um, to I should introduce, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Anna. I am the host of the Future of Figure Skating podcast and uh, a member of the team at Anything GOE and here with Lois, who is also um, Anything GOE, and we're uh, happy to have this conversation today. So Joan Ryan um, is not only the author of Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, but of five books. Um, her most recent book um, is Intangibles, Lock Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry, which sounds very interesting. And she is a pioneer in sports journalism, becoming one of the first female sports columnists in the country. She's won literally dozens of awards for her writing um, and Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, which was her first book, has been named one of the top 100 sports books of all time by Sports Illustrated. Um, and Caitlin um, is joining us on Anything Jewy for the second time now. I'm very happy to have you here. Um, Caitlin is a three-time world medalist, uh, two-time Four Continents champion, two-time Grand Prix final champion, three-time Canadian national champion, and uh, since retiring from competitive skating, Caitlin has been super busy as a choreographer, as a commentator, um, working with her um, nonprofit Open Ice Collective and working with Skate Canada and the ISU on improving the rules and the systems of the sport. Um, and I am so happy to have you both here. And I wanted to kick us off um, with a couple of questions for Joan about your process in writing the book and how you, um, first off, really, what got you inspired to follow this story? Well, first of all, again, thank you for inviting me on. It's, um, I'm, I'm so honored that you uh, chose Little Girls in Pretty Boxes to look, um, to explore this summer. Um, so this started back in 1992, um, before the Barcelona Olympics. And my sports editor and I, I was at the Orlando Sentinel at the time. Um, I've been a sports writer, you know, since like 1983 or something. And, and this was 1992, you know, a little before 1992. And, you know, what struck me 
was, you know, like I said, we were brainstorming on an angle, you know, for the upcoming Olympics. And we landed on, you know, gosh, you know, the best athletes at the Olympics or among the best athletes in the Olympics are girls, not women, girls who were, you know, as young as 14 years old and being the Michael Jordans and the, you know, Serena Williams of, um, of, of uh, figure skating and, and uh, gymnastics. And, and actually at that time we were looking at swimming and diving and all of those sports in which, you know, these children are, you know, leading the world in, in athletics. So, every great story <laughs> starts with questions, right? It's the curiosity of, well, okay, what happens to their psyche? What happens to their physiology at being, um, at, you know, training for hours and hours and hours and hours every day away from their parents? So what impact does that have on their development of their brains and of their bodies? And so we started to look into that. I wrote a series of articles for the San Francisco Examiner. And then a agent came to me and said, wow, this would be a great book. And I said, no, thanks. Um, <laughs> after doing all of that research and back in the day, I mean, you think about it, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones. You know, we had to go to the library and look up um, you know, you're everything doing, you know, look up <laughs> all of these stories that were written and all the research that was written. And also I had to call the track down the phone numbers of, you know, all these different um, parents and, and girls in gymnastics and figure skating. And so it took a little while and, you know, you're immersed in it and it's not, it was not happy information. So that's, that's where this all started. Yeah. And so as you did um, proceed into working on this book, um, like you said, this is often really difficult stories that you are asking people to tell. Um, what was your process like for having, you know, those difficult conversations often, you know, with people who have gone through a lot of trauma and, you know, may or may not be themselves that, you know, having processed or being that aware of it, um, you know, how do you approach those conversations? And I guess, did you, were you aware that the story that you were telling was painting such a damning overall picture as you went into it? I certainly had a sense of it because I had written a, a series of articles, but then when I, you know, took time off and really dug in, it was so much worse <laughs> than I knew, even from writing those articles. Um, and what surprised me in that process of just, you know, tracking down one girl after another, after another, and coaches and parents, um, was how open they were to share their stories. I, I think that it was bottled up for a long time because you really weren't, it, it, Nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody wanted to hear it. You know, the parents didn't want to hear it, you know, it, it, along the way. So it wasn't hard to, I, I was shocked at how open even the parents were after the fact. Um, I, 
I realized very early on that I was not going to get anything from current figure skaters and gymnasts because mm-hmm. they were still in that box. They were still in there and, and you know, kind of understanding that nobody wanted to. So it was interviewing all of the retired <laughs> figure skaters and gymnasts. Mm-hmm. And they were so open with me. And it really was, I mean, I would sit there and I know journalists, you know, you'd have journalists say, well, you can't get too emotionally involved. It's like, you can't help but get emotionally involved when you hear these stories. You know, and I would sit there and tear up listening to what these girls went went through and, and just not being able to wrap my brain around it, that the parents would be sitting there watching this happen and not only just tolerate it, but push it, push it farther than the, the girls already were there. So it was just so mind blowing that this was going on and going on for decades. And we would look at these girls every four years in their respective you know, winter or summer. Mm-hmm. And they would, it would come across on NBC or I, I forget, you know, who was ABC, who was ever carrying it. And it just looked like odds. It just looked like, oh my God, you know, these girls, oh, they're just so cute and they're so amazing and they look so, they never looked so happy, but, <laughs> but um, they were America's princesses mm-hmm. and people fell in love with them and didn't need to hear anything other than what they saw every four years on television. Yeah. And that's, I think, a good segue to what the reaction and the response was um, from the publication of the book, um, both within the sports, um, where there was a fairly negative response and then more broadly, um, you know, in, in the culture, um, how was that for you as you were, you know, publishing your first book and seeing, um, such a strong, uh, response and outcry come up from it? Right. I mean, it was two, you know, diametrically opposed reactions. One is, like you said, you know, I was the devil incarnate. You know, I, I was the worst person in the world and, and everything that I had researched was absolutely not true. And all I wrote about was the negative and, you know, nothing about all the positive. And on the other hand, I mean, the media, you know, went crazy over it. I mean, they were like, couldn't get enough of it. You know, it was, I was on Oprah in 60 minutes and, you know, uh, the Today Show, I mean, all over it, every Olympic uh, writer wrote a column, wrote a story. It was all over the place. Um, And on the other hand, you know, there was, in one example, Bella Caroli, who, when USA Today wrote a story about um, the book, and Bella Caroli was, uh, Bella Caroli was interviewed and he says, I have never met her. She never interviewed me. And I was like, what? You know, because of course I taped every single interview I did 
And I was sitting across the desk from him at his gym in, um, in Houston for three hours with my tape recorder in the middle of the desk. And I'm like, what is he thinking? And then what occurred to me, and I don't know for sure this is true, but is that he really believed that he didn't talk to me because we had the most, you know, a, a lovely chat for three hours. And luckily, by the time I interviewed him, I had, and I had trying to get an interview, trying to get it, didn't get an interview. And in the meantime, while I was trying to get an interview with him, I'm interviewing all these other gymnasts and their parents and coaches. And so I had this long list of incidents that all of them were telling me. Mm. And I just went through that list as a journalist and just say, hey, you know, so-and-so says this, you know, what's what's your recollection, you know? So it was very, very polite and, and very, you know, amicable. So I don't think he connected that woman in his office with the person who wrote this scathing um, expose. Yeah. yeah. Um, Caitlin, I want to turn to you because um, when we um, first posted that we were thinking about reading this book, you had said that this is something that you had read when you were a teenager and that it made an impression on you. And so I'd, I'd love to hear about you know how you encountered um, this book and these stories. Oh my gosh, um, I have so many thoughts. And, and first and foremost, I just wanna thank you again um, team, anything GOE for inviting me to be a part of this. And, and Joan, this is a really sublime honor and full circle moment for me. So thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. Um, I, I have so many thoughts just even on what we've heard so far. And I think the best way for me to start is to just um, kind of give a bit of a picture on my, my upbringing. So I grew up in Houston. I grew up in the home of Tara Lipinski. Um, not far away from the camp of the Corollis. And um, being a competitive child athlete was the dream. Being able to train at the rink, go to school at the rink, live at the rink in the training atmosphere was my goal. And, um, and I get chills remembering how excited that used to make me um, where I wanted to be immersed in the atmosphere. And I remember watching the fluff pieces on whatever, NBC, ABC, you know, whoever the network was. And I sat there with my mom and we were like, wow, I wonder what that could be like. You know, I wonder like how great that could be. And so in a way we were absolutely conditioned. And I say we, because, you know, raising a, an athlete, um, a young athlete is, it takes a village, you know, it takes a family and a, and a support system. and and I think that my mom and I, at least, we um, all dreamed that, you know. Uh, so fast forward a little bit. I, I moved away from Houston I, for training. I, I moved to Connecticut um, for, uh, to be around an elite figure skating group. And um, in my sophomore year of high school, I was writing a thesis on um, how the Olympics caused transformed figure skating into a popular spectator sport. And so um, I was looking for resources. And at the time, you know, we didn't have, I don't even know if Google existed back then. 
Um, and so I was looking for uh, books and, and I found in my high school library, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes. And I was just like, first of all, finding a resource about figure skating was difficult. That didn't exist in like, you know, that wasn't like a book about figures from 1953, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I stumbled upon this book kind of by accident. And I, I think I was looking for a quote um, Joan, that you had about Tanya and Nancy. And, it, you know, I was, I was attributing this drama to fueling kind of the engine and making figure skating so popular. And little did I know that I was about to uncover this, you know, facade of what my dream was. And I think um, there, there, were, there were two things I think that happened. Um, the first was that I, I began reading um, and it was like, oh, that's not me. That this isn't about people like me. And and I remember really, I, I really remember reading the first chapter, and it was a gymnast named Julissa, and she broke her neck. And uh, and I remember being like, that's that's really terrible, and that's really uh, real, but that's not my life. And um, of course, it's my life you know, figure skating is not that dissimilar from, from gymnastics. And so there was something about the stories that I couldn't see as me um, as part of what I was experiencing. But then as I read, read more, I, it was like, absolutely, this is, this is something that I'm going through. And I remember thinking like, wait, we're, we are all supposed to be pretty. <laughs> we all are supposed to not experience um, puberty. And I, I, felt though that I kind of fit into the pretty box perfectly. Mm -hmm. And so there was a bit of an awakening that was like, oh, it was really hard for me to understand. Was this me? Was this not me? Because I thought that I kind of fit the mold and, you know, I didn't have to deal with a lot of these issues that many of the uh, people, athletes in the sport have. Um, but I think it planted a seed that allowed me to question the norm. And, um, and at age 14, and 15, 14 or 15, um, I was just starting my career. My career was just beginning. I just had moved. I, my family had relocated. Um, I was starting to consider that I could be on an Olympic team someday in a very real way. Um, I was absolutely committed. And, um, and I started to notice how my coach spoke to me. Um, you know, how it made me feel. Uh, it wasn't maybe the goal anymore to feel like beaten down was a way to, su to succeed, being beaten down. So um, I think that it, it was imperative that I happened to stumble across it at that time, at that uh, stage of development as a woman um, and also as an athlete. And so then if I can fast forward again, um, I remember seeing Anna's post and, and this is a, this is a book that a piece that I hadn't really thought of in the last maybe decade or something. Sorry, Joan, no, no offense. And, um, and I saw Anna's post and I was just like, I had a visceral reaction and I thought, Oh my God, that was the book that like really made a huge impact on me. And, um, and I started to remember that and, and then to think of this full circle that I started, you know, I read that 
at such an early point in my career and now I've gone through the career and I've come out the other side and now I'm looking back at it and I have so many thoughts about like how we are kind of still in the same place as as when the book was written in 95 um and you know all the all the news that's come out in both sports since then um and for me how even amongst my group of friends we're we're kind of just beginning to unravel what figure skating means for our gender um you know it's competitive gender performance and and for me as a queer woman i've had to unpack what the definition of femininity is how i've grown up with this idea of success being also interwoven with my femininity um as a young woman and also as a as an adult and and so i'm just i'm just thinking like wow this book was so ahead of its time um, and I and I guess with all of that being said, I just want to thank you, Joan, for for writing this piece and for um, traversing this crazy world of figure skating as well as, of course, gymnastics. But I can only speak on on my experience that um, it it really touched me, and um, I feel like you told the stories of so many people um, that that may never have their stories told and um, that see themselves in this piece, and. Um, and I'm sorry to say that I think it's perpetuating, but I, I really am so grateful for you to have done that and, you know, been brave enough to take on the, these stories and continue to talk about it today. Well, Caitlin, listening to that, you know, I'm wondering where you are now when you say you've come full circle. What, is, what does that look like now? I think um, full circle for me, I, I, a couple, a couple things. First is exiting the sport. You know, I, I, I encountered this book at the very beginning of my journey um, to Olympic, you know, success, and and now I'm out of it. And then the other way I think that how that feels to me is, um, I want to be a part of the change. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think I was kind of a piece of the puzzle and and um, and I, I don't often think of myself as a victim. Um, and that's probably deep conditioning as well. Uh, but I, I was a, a just a, a piece of this grander scheme, you know, um, without really even knowing it. And now I can look back and really understand the trauma that I and, and a lot of my a lot of my contemporaries have gone through. And, um, and I'm looking back and, and saying, okay, but what are we gonna do to fix it? And, um, and so I think of your work as an example of just how it, this is perpetuated for so long as well as my experience of it as well. Yeah, it is absolutely, it, it, it's so amazing that however many years later, you know, how, how we have it, moved so much. I think gymnastics, because of the Larry Nasser stuff, I think, you know, that blew up. And now you have this very recognizable army of gymnasts who are leading the charge and are going to, I mean, that's why I'm optimistic about gymnastics changing, because these, you know, women and young women are not going to rest until it, until it, does change. And I'm not as familiar, you know, with the broader 
figure skating and where in, in, in the broad sense, where figure skating is now in comparison to gymnastics? I think that um, we haven't had a total upheaval um, in, as, as, as USA Gymnastics has. Um, we have some type of education now for, for uh, coaches and parents, and it's called Safe Sport, and it's an attempt right. to keep people in the know about what abuse looks like and sounds like. Um, and it's not so much to deter the bad coaches because bad people will exist always, it's to um, empower the bystander and educate the bystander into understanding what that looks like. And, you know, to a degree, I think it helps, question mark. Um, but <laughs> I, I think that we have major issues and, and a lot of it is cultural as well. And, um, and, and, I, and I think uh, going back to something that was said earlier, you know, Japan, in other areas of the world, skating is on the rise. And in, in, you know, in USA and Canada, skating is not so popular as it was back in the 90s. And I think a lot of it is because we have this outdated view of what uh, success looks like in skating. And um, that doesn't keep up with the rest of the sporting world and, you know, the rest of the world, in, in my opinion, um, what success can look like. It can be empowered women, strong women, fierce women, and, and figure skating is a little bit stuck. And, um, and so I think, you know, we try, there, there are, there are, there are elements in place to try and be better. Um, but I don't think it's better yet. Well, the thing too, you know, that kind of is separating uh, gymnastics and figure skating is, you know, when I watch figure skating, which I love, I do love watching figure skating. I mean, everybody does. I mean, who doesn't love watching figure skating? Um, but is there conversation and is there movement on that you don't need to be so sparkly, you know, and you don't need to be wearing a bathing suit basically on the, the ice? Like, when is that going to get into the 21st century? And yes, gymnastics is, is a bit, but, you know, those gymnasts, we're seeing their musculature. We're seeing, you know, there, there is less, you know, uh, fairy dust in their, in their hair and in their, you know, all of that. It, it does seem like it has shifted a little bit more overtly athletic <laughs> whereas you know figure skating is incredibly athletic i mean incredibly all that stuff but not overtly you know it still has that femininity you know the the ballerina in the box popping up and always looking beautiful so where is figure skating in, on that level and i and lois i don't want to take the mic you from you so please Please you go jump first. In. I have things to say, but you go first. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> um, first of all, there's nothing wrong with sparkles, Joan. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is I, true. <laughs> I donned many a sparkle in my day. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, what we see as the ideal figure skating woman is someone who looks perfect 
and who is the traditional definition of feminine and um, not necessarily womanly at all. Uh, and even up to uh, now, I think it's two years ago, I I'm an ice dancer, so I skate with a partner um, who is a man. And uh, in my discipline of figure skating, women were not allowed to wear pants. Not that they didn't because of whatever, you know, however, like we interpreted the story. No, we were not, we were not allowed to have the option of wearing pants. And I'm curious now, as I say that out loud, if in gymnastics, you're only allowed to wear a leotard, um, you know, the idea of governing women's bodies, I think is an entirely like kind of maybe separate issue, but tandem parallel to this discussion. Um, but uh, I think a lot of that has to do with what is rewarded. Um, when we when we think of a champion, you know, it's someone that looks like, I, I mean, the first thing that I think of is rich, white, elite, um, f feminine, of course, as you know, I hate to sound, you know, risk of sounding repetitive, that that is the continued mm -hmm. push. And, um, and it's either you know, you're young and feminine and ingenue, or you're sexy and a little raunchy and a little naughty, and there's nothing in between. And, um, and I remember being, you know, getting the ballet roles down, like got those, and I would always be pushed, you're not being sexy enough, you're not being sexy enough. And it was like, why can't I just be me, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that uh, we won't change until the judging changes either until yeah. we learn to really value those things because skaters and athletes will do anything it takes to succeed. We have put our lives on the line. As you wrote in your book, we've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to get to this point. Our families have mortgage, you know, triple mortgage their houses. And, you know, I think about that all the time, what my family has given up for me to succeed. And so why would I risk all of that to do something maybe my own way and not achieve the result that all of these people have put everything on the line for. You know, I feel like I was just the, it was my dream, but I was kind of the figurehead on this massive production. Um, and so I would not do anything to F that up. Sorry for my language, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything to risk that. And, mm -hmm. um, and that also, you know, comes into why I, I was so afraid to come out you know, queer people in skating are, are not typically the most feminine. And, you know, I did not understand that you could be gay and be pretty. And, you know, I thought that, like, <laughs> I thought that, you know, it was like people would think I would be more butched or, you know, which, like, I wish I could be more butch. Um, so it, it really, how we see figure skating as the ideal image is controlled by who's winning. And, um, and I think we won't change that until we learn to value all different identities, as well as the ones that have succeeded in the past. So well said. It's yeah, wonderful. Absolutely. And the only thing I wanted to add to that was just that there's this dichotomy between, you know, art and sport that gets then matched onto a, a feminine and masculine, um, where the often in figure skating, the men who are seen as being more athletic and less artistic often is 
matched onto this idea of like, well, maybe those are the straight ones. And maybe we like that they're in the sport because then that's countering the stereotypes. And then for women, it's often the opposite of this sense that, oh, you want to be the, you know, present this effortlessness and this um, and the sparkles and all of that. It's such a limited view of it's a limited view of gender. It's a limited view of, of being an athlete and it's a limited view of what art is. And so, in you know, in each of those ways, I tend to think like not say you know, muscles are better than sparkles or sparkles are better than muscles, but like there's some um, uh, way of saying, well, whatever, com you know, whatever combination of those that is what you want to present, um, you know, is valid. Uh, and I was thinking about Kaori Sakamoto being nominated for Sportswoman of the Year um, by the Women's Sports Foundation and how there's not certainly not always a figure skater in that category and how um, that's a really cool honor for her and very well deserved for all of her accomplishments and sort of the, but the image that she has, I think is a really interesting one where she is someone who often portrays a real sense of strength, but not at the expense of, you know, presenting herself as a, you know, with a strong kind of artistic point of view either. And so I think we are seeing, there always have been people who have found ways to, you know, be themselves despite the sport and, um, I suppose I'm by nature an optimist. And so I feel like part of what I've been able to find out through talking to people through my podcast is that there are a lot of people right now, very more vocally, those who aren't competing, but even though many people who are, who are really thinking very hard about how to be themselves in the sport and trying to find ways, sometimes small ways within the, you know, the cracks of what the system allows them, but trying to find ways to be themselves. So I do see that change happening in small ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, oh, sorry. Um, I think, uh, Anna, just, just to piggyback on that, I think that in reference to this idea of health and well-being of the athlete, um, to feel understood, and to feel seen in your identity mm -hmm. and whatever that is, whether it's sparkles and muscles, <laughs> love that. Um, mm -hmm. I think that is the first step towards wellness, and um, and I and I hope that I hope that you know we can continue down that road as well. Mm -hmm. And you know, one line that really stood out to me so much, and maybe when I was thinking about what I was taking away from having just reread and tried to lead a discussion on this book um, was this line um, that no one tells them that their bodies belong to them and not their coaches or parents. And that's you know, from the chapter on injury and how um, young girls were being used to the idea that they would be injured and that would just be part of the process and mm -hmm. to get used to pain. But it really struck me that that extends into the conversation about eating disorders, the conversation about how, um, you know, what version of femininity, what version of yourself that you're presenting in the um, mm -hmm. aesthetic parts of the sport. It even gets into the questions about abuse and having that kind of bodily autonomy um, taken away from you. And so, you know, thinking about that question that the body belongs to the athlete and not their coach or their parents, um, I was also thinking about the question of 
you know, children in sport and um, in what ways can, you know, young athletes, you know, meaningfully consent to choosing the lifestyle of an elite athlete and following their dreams. And I don't think there's an easy, straightforward um, answer to that question, but um, with several thoughts being combined there, I am curious what you think about that question of how um, do children need to be treated differently or how do you deal with this idea of um, like autonomy and choice um, for mm -hmm. young athletes? Yeah, that is such a core question um, about all of this. I mean, I think everything rises from those two things. Children are being, children need to be treated differently and these different versions of athleticism. And as you were talking like that, you know, really for me, and I didn't, I didn't really have this thought until you know, the third iteration of my book, my latest one that you, that you held up. And it's the version of reality that the, these athletes um, get caught in. in. For instance, uh, you know, you have the, their gymnasts, figure skaters, and these coaches and their parents are, even though, you know, the, the athlete is feeling like, God, you know, my back is hurting or the way that coach touched me didn't feel, didn't feel right. And then the coach and the parents are saying, oh, stop it. You know, just it, it's, it, it's what you need to do in order to, um, you know, be the best and everybody is, is going through the same thing. So don't be, you know, this crybaby about, and so you know, your sense of brand is like, oh, okay, I guess I'm wrong. Even though everything in my body is saying this doesn't feel right. And I actually am in pain. And, uh, and yet everybody in that culture is telling you, no, that's not real. And so you stop trusting your own sensibility about everything. And that that carries on beyond the gym and, and beyond the rink too. You know, you don't trust anything that, that you perceive and nothing is more dangerous than that. You know, anything can happen to you in that way. And, and that's something I realized later. And I was like, wow, just the thought of go, you know, being in that athlete's head and saying, oh yeah, my thoughts don't matter. My feelings don't matter. My pain doesn't matter. Um, my abuse doesn't matter because it's it's not real. And like that, still, I have a hard time getting my my brain around that. And with the with the children, I mean, you know, this was ended up being kind of the 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 core message of my book is that really there should be child protective services <laughs> there should be a law against child labor you know there is a law against child labor so how could this not be this is not a hobby it's a job 
that they're doing to get to the Olympics and get sponsorships and, and all of that. And yet it's not treated, it's not perceived that way at all. And so, I mean, for me, that was, it should have been a law so that these girls had some security when their parents aren't taking care of them. There's no, you know, there, there was no um, safety net. Nobody was looking after them. So when nobody's looking after them, it, it has to be an outside, outside source. And, you know, there should be um, random checks at skating rinks and at, at gyms. And it should be former athletes who are showing up because they've been there and they know what questions to ask about what's going on with that young woman um, and, and have a hotline so that any girl who's, you know, feeling this way. Now, I say that the problem is what I just said before is that their reality, their version of reality doesn't take in that they're actually getting abused. But if you have a former athlete sharing and, you know, Caitlin, like you were saying, it's that you sort of wake up to, wait a minute, yeah, that is happening to me. And yeah, I don't like that happening to me. So, and, and again, over the years since my book came out, you know, there's so many discussions, so many conversations and we know this, like we know what's going on. And the coaches know, and the, you know, USA Gymnastics knows and figure skating knows it. And yet not, there has not been any real radical, I mean, it has to be a radical change, radical change in this. And it's, you know, like I said, I figure, you know, in gymnastics, I see the progress starting to happen. And in figure skating, you know, I, I, I'm just not so sure. And it's not only these two sports, it is swimming and diving. You know, every sport where it's young women who are competing is always, is they're always at, at risk. And I think we're seeing more and more awareness that it's also not just women and that things there are certainly areas of sports where there are um you know athletes of all genders that are ending up with having eating disorders dealing with abuse um and but that often it is we're seeing those stories come out of women's sports and maybe be heard or treated a little bit differently when they come out of women's sports i don't know um, you know, have a broad theory, you know, any kind of broad theory about that, but it's been fascinating watching the um, stories around the Women's World Cup, both as um, a real celebration of women's sports on a higher stage and just increasingly popular, increasingly supported, and also along with that stage, the way athletes have been having to speak out about their own mistreatment in a many, many different ways in many different nations um, that have been dealing with that. And so it seems like, like you said, the conversation is everywhere. 
Um, and the conversation about solutions doesn't seem as advanced as the conversation about the problem, but maybe that is typical. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, well also the men and women, oh, sorry, Louis, I'll just put this in. You know, the men and women, it's that in gymnastics and in figure skating, and it's, it's a little bit less so now, and I think, Anna, maybe you had mentioned this earlier, is that for females, you know, they're trying to um, uh, keep puberty at bay. And for males, they need to go through puberty in order to be, for the most part, in order to be the best in the world, because what they're doing is, you know, um, you know they're growing their musculature after puberty. And for the girls, it's like, oh, I got to be as skinny as possible. And, and I don't want to go through puberty. Anyway, so Lois, sorry to interrupt you. That's fine. I think one of the hardest parts of being a fan of the sport is being able to see abusive environments and skaters who are clearly in abusive environments and not being able to do anything. Because like you can't highlight an abusive situation unless there is proof of it. You can't like even though you can see interviews and you can you can read what's happening in certain circumstances, say like in Russia, and you can see from interviews and you can see that that's an abusive environment and you can see that that's happening, but the coaches continue to get rewarded, the skaters continue to get high results, and it just becomes a cyclical thing when nothing will change at that level because you can't change the culture that is decades and decades and decades ingrained into the sport. It's, it's just so difficult to watch and not be able to do anything about it. Yeah, I think that is very real and part of, um, yeah, that's certainly what drove my curiosity into trying to understand more and trying to find, you know, who are the people who are trying to, to do things differently. Um, one question that you know I do feel like has come up for me in a couple of places, and also I want to encourage um, if any of our audience um, wants to um, throw in any questions, please do so as we're going here. Um, but one of the other questions that really came up for me with this was um, how much these external um, validators, um, the people, the federations, the media, the sort of the people who are maybe a little bit outside of the system who um, potentially could be watchdogs on it, um, also get so caught up in validating the system. And so then for, you know, for us as um, for Lois and I trying to do media in this, how to do that responsibly when like Lois said, you don't necessarily have proof that something's going wrong unless somebody has actually spoken out about it, but you don't want to ignore issues either. Um, we've seen this around the idea of um, not glorifying training through injury, for example, as one area that maybe there's a way to change how we talk about it. But I'm curious, you know, Joan, from your perspective as a sports journalist and Caitlin, um, I mean, you do commentary, you also speak out a lot about the sport in these ways, how you um, see the 
you know, the role and the responsibility of, you know, those of us in those positions to um, at least not add to the system and hopefully to disrupt it somewhat. Well, I'm going to jump in on that one. Um, in the 1996 Olympics, and this was gymnastics, Summer Olympics in Atlanta, <clears throat> um, and those of you who may have watched this with Carrie Strug. So she was, um, you know, with the vault, <clears throat> the horse, and she was, um, you know, the U.S., and I can't remember was the Russians or the, you know, whoever it was, but the U.S. was, Carrie Strug was the last to compete. And everybody thought, you know, she had to land this in order for the U.S. to win. It was a big, big deal. Only later did we find out, oh no, they already had enough points she could win. <laughs> so I'm covering it as a journalist and, you know, obviously I haven't written the book. And so, you know, Carrie Strug has really, really had injured her ankle before she had to do this last vault. <clears throat> and so there was a lot of controversy of, oh, should she, should she run? She's going to hurt herself. She's going to, you know, do all this. And so she did, she did the vault and she landed and, you know, she immediately pulled her leg up and, you know, had to hobble off. And of course, Bella Caroli, you know, comes in and lifts her up and, oh, you know, he's got to get his uh, TV time. So, of course, I was asked a million times, like, well, what did you think of that? You know, the abuse and, and all that. And I said, you know what? I have a different point of view on this. I think she, this is what, she's an athlete. She had trained her entire life for this moment. And yes, she was going to hurt herself. She knew it. She was going to hurt herself. She also knew she wasn't going to die. And I thought, you know what? She's a gritty athlete. You know, she's an athlete that's ready to just put it all on the line. And so I had the perspective of, you know what? Every athlete I know at that level, in that exact moment, almost every athlete's going to do what she did. And there, and I admired her for doing it. And people were like, what, you know, you're supporting that. And I said, I'm supporting her, you know, she's an amazing athlete. You know, she's a gritty athlete. And I said, good for her. That's what she wanted to do in that moment. I mean, can you imagine just walking away and maybe the team lost, she was carrying that team on her shoulder. So it's interesting. What is acceptable what is even admirable and what qualifies as abuse? It's a tough one. I'm gonna have to think about that for a second. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, it just made me think about um, this day, these days in the in the social media age, you see a lot of athletes who get injured or like have an issue or something. And there will be a lot of people commenting, oh, oh this person shouldn't be competing like almost that kind of taking that agency away from people so like there is um there's a ice dancer who has had like a serious uh, brain injury in the last year and um had to practice with a helmet on and everything and went to the world championships um 
this year um and a lot of people thought that was too soon that she shouldn't be competing obviously she's been cleared by doctors obviously her coaching team believes she could be there she has since had another concussion and is back wearing a helmet again but i know when yeah, people saw that she'd had another issue um they were like oh well she shouldn't be competing anymore she shouldn't be doing this anymore it's ultimately her choice obviously it's dangerous obviously it's risky but there's always risk in the sport and it's it's her agency to decide whether she wants to compete or not but if yeah there's she a lot hasn't of been overly influenced you know so yes. there's just so many different things i mean were was she put up to it like hey you know you, you know the whole world is going to collapse yeah. if you don't just do this but, thing you know yeah, so i see so that questions. point of view too questions regarding whether they would lose their funding from their federation if they didn't compete and do well at Worlds. They did ultimately not get funding from their federation after that because they didn't make the free dance. They didn't do very well, obviously, because they hadn't trained very much in the past mm -hmm. year. But so people think, oh, well, it's the federation's fault that they're competing. But yeah, I mean, there's so many factors involved. It's complicated, but, but like, that does yeah. seem I've heard from, you know, stories from a number of athletes about coming back to competition faster than they wanted to yes. because, specifically because of the funding thing, which I think is very natural that your, you know, your ability to fund the sport is based on your ability to do the sport and get results. But when it's coming from, let's say the national federation, yeah. it's like that is one clear area that could be improved is to, for people in those decision-making places to try to have a little bit of a longer term view to say oh you know you're one of our top athletes and you're injured we're going to keep funding you for this year while you're recovering so that you can come back and be stronger yeah. and you know this there's gonna you're gonna put limits on that in some place but it does seem like there it's an area that puts yeah. unnecessary pressure um on athletes it's towing a, it's towing a line of should this should this person be competing or not? Should the federation be helping them more than they are? Which usually, in terms of things, they should probably should be because most federations are not funding their athletes as much as they can be, um, or they don't, or the federation doesn't have enough money in the first place to fund them. Um, but yeah, there's it's interesting in the social media age to watch how people react to different athletes and, and what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, I've. I've, I couldn't agree more to all of these points and um, shocking to find out that that the the number one community that is supposed to be uplifting you is the one that's holding that above your head in terms of funding. Um, I remember having an injury. I broke my ankle. I had screws. I, you know, uh, displaced bone, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to come back for the world championships because if we didn't come back, then Canada would risk not having three births for the Olympic Games the next year because the world championships, the results of the world championships decided how many births each country would get. And I remember having, uh, putting a little extra pressure on myself to come back. Um, I also completely agree with Carrie Scruggs with the idea that any athlete put in that position would do the exact same thing. And, you know, my ankle wasn't broken as I was skating, um, but I was I was there months sooner than anybody ever expected me to be. Um, I think the question that I have is, um, well, I, I have two thoughts. And, and first, Anna, I think this is going back to your original question is, you know, what can we do about this? And um, 
and I thought about something I read in the book and, and just o- overarching theme is, you know, is it worth it? Um, what, what is this, what is this all worth? You know, the, the conditioning, the hardships, the injuries, the disordered eating, the metals or lack thereof, is it worth it? And, um, and I know speaking with a few of my contemporaries, a lot of people say no. And I think the more voices we can hear, you know, and, and highlight and put and platform, um, the, I think the less people will feel alone and that they have to push through and persevere in order to achieve their dream. Whereas, you know, the Olympics is not the end all be all. There should, in my opinion, be different paths that are valued as successful, you know, not just like either you skate to go to the Olympics or you skate recreationally. You know, there's that, that's the only two, those are the only two options. If you're not good enough to make the Olympics, then, you know, might as well give it up and go take a spin around Rockefeller Center at Christmas, you know? And I think that um, there are so many, figure skating is just the most beautiful, uh, empowering, stunning, like an otherworldly sport there is. And, um, and I think everybody should be able to find themselves, find their own success in it and have that not necessarily be represented by a medal around their neck. Um, so I think talking about that and what we give up and if it, you know, if it at all is, is worth it in the end is, is an important question. And then the other thing, just in regards to this idea of, of injury and abuse is um, at what point, and I don't have the answer to this, but at what point when and how do we begin to give an athlete agency when they're, you know, do you give a six-year-old agency like over their bodies? Hopefully yes. But at the same point, like how many of us would not be elite athletes if we didn't have someone saying, go on, go back out there, like get up, you can do it. Or, you know, to, to actually push us when we needed to be pushed. Cause I wasn't the most dedicated nine-year-old, like at times, <laughs> um so like I I don't know what the answer to that question mm-hmm. is and where we're able to draw the line because it is so uh particular to the person um how do we kind of find the law for lack thereof you know mm-hmm. in that in that kind of direction right yeah and and it goes back again to you know these are children you know, we don't let our children drive a car, you know, it's like, you know, there are limits to what we should allow. And, you know, Caitlin, I'm sure you were this way. Uh, and, and a lot of, you know, young athletes that in the elite world is that, you know, you love the sport, you love the sport. And, you know, your parents aren't pushing you because, you know, you're way ahead of the parents, you know, you're like, oh, let me do this. Let me do that. I love this. I love this. Love this. And then over time, unfortunately, as you get to the lead part, you know, what you love so much gets like perverted into this thing that's a that's a job and, and that's, you know, is pain and abuse and, and all the rest of it. And you stay in it because this is what you do and this is what you love. And then it's hard to, you know, from doing my interviews, obviously I'm not, you know, I wasn't a figure skater or a gymnast, but it's about, you know, tr- trying to recapture what that was originally. And it's, and it's, and it's so twisted. And what also I was thinking, Caitlin, when you were talking about, you know, the um, figure skating and how beautiful it is and, and, you know, wanting to, 
you know, keep doing it. And it's like in gymnastics and almost any sport you can think of, golf, anything, you get to do that in college. And there's not a college, um, you know, there's not a college in America or the world, right, that has a figure skating team. Is there? There are now. It's actually oh, at colleges. Oh, yay! A lot. Um, it's, okay. and it's still a much smaller, and it's often club, not varsity. But there is. Okay. Um, so it's not. You know, it's, you can, can't necessarily get a, a scholarship to it the way you could for gymnastics. But at least yeah. that I, any place that I know of, the, maybe there are some. But um, but it is a growing thing, and as we're That's seeing, um, there's been a couple of um, Karen Chen is a uh, two-time Olympian is um, now skating for the court in, in for the Cornell team and posting about it all over the place. And I think skaters like that showing that they can have you know have a college career that's also just fun and sort of team-based yeah. in some ways. Um, I think has done a lot to show the possibilities in that space. And it it goes to what Caitlin was saying about there being multiple paths. Right, that it isn't just the Olympics. You know that you can skate and and enjoy it and test yourself and challenge yourself in other platforms i love that i love that you know that i really hope that grows um you know get those hockey guys off that lit rink <laughs> or at least share you know share that rink with the with the figure skaters yes yeah <laughs> I find that um, I work with some of the skaters that skate for the NYU team here um, in New York, and and it's so nice to see them approach skating with a healthier mindset. Um, you know, their all of their stress, I think, goes to their education, <laughs> um, but it's so nice to see you know their hard work not go to waste either. Or I even have to catch myself; it doesn't go to waste even if you don't compete at the Olympics. But like, you know, for them to feel like they can still enjoy it and push themselves and achieve new things and, and it, have it matter. And so, you know, I know I say that there are really no, not that many options, but I think that they are starting. So I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but, I, but it's, it's nice to see them begin to grow and be of value. And there are a lot more options now than there were. I was thinking about, you know, I came up skating in the nineties um, as, you know, and not a, at an elite level, but um, had exactly that sort of, oh, well, you're not making that. So there's not another option. And I would, I sorted into the, the not going to the Olympics half of that equation. Um, and uh, really, you know, it's now that I see there being many other programs, there's Showcase, there's Excel, there's Theater on Ice, there's Synchro, there's a lot more things that are growing, at least in the US, though it's very uneven around the world, whether those kinds of programs exist. I think there's a lot more still to go, but um, but a lot more exists now than did previously. Um, so I see that as you know, <laughs> one area for optimism. I, I have a question, um, if that's okay. I have a question for Joan. Um, and uh, this is something I was thinking of as I was preparing for this talk. Um, Joan, you researched this book, you know, almost three decades ago. And we're still sitting here having these conversations as if the book just came out. And, um, and I think that so much of what you've written about has been 
uncovered in the public eye and, and, you know, in a way, uh, was like an oracle to what was to come. And so I'm wondering how did you, how do you, how did you, and how do you continue to grapple with those feelings? And can't imagine it being anything other than frustrating to say, I told you, look at what, look at what we've been talking about. Um, because for, to a point, you know, you do feel powerless in this great big system. Um, so how do you cope with that internally, um, knowing full well the gravitas of all of these stories and yet at some point they're not really being heard in a mass way at this mm -hmm. time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was confusing to me, um, getting all the book, getting all that attention early on, you know, on 60 Minutes and all of those things and you're like, okay. You know, now nobody can say they don't know. You know, you can't unknow it once you know it. And yet they did unknow it <laughs> for all those years. And and it was funny too, because anytime any, you know, controversy came about figure skating or, or gymnastics, I would get the calls from media. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we went through this one already. <laughs> and then, you know, five years later, it's, you know, the same thing, same thing, same thing, same thing. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of, you know, you, you get used, you know, not you get used to it, but um, you're like, okay, you know, when is the needle going to start moving though? And then when the Larry Nasser thing happened and, you know, the story broke about Larry Nasser and, you know, Bella Crowley's ranch and, and all the rest of it, that was the first time I just like my response was absolute fury. It wasn't just like, oh my God, here we go again. I mean, I was just furious, just knowing and, and you know, I watched on CNN um, the all of the gymnasts coming through and you know the Michigan courthouse and sharing their experience, you know, and, and directly focusing on Larry Nasser sitting there. <clears throat> and as, you know, day after day, we'd hear their testimony. And then gymnasts around the country were watching it and starting to show up. And so what started as about, you know, 90 of them you know, who, who came forward, you know, turned into 150 and 160 and every single one of them had their say. <clears throat> and so I saw, I, I saw that and, and that's when I was like, how, how could 30 years go by or it wasn't quite, but you know, like 30 years go by and all these girls were suffering and, and, and tens of, you know, hundreds more who didn't show up in Michigan. And they all went through an abuse when 30 years ago, you know, the siren rang out 30 years ago. And all this time, you know, I, I sort of get choked up even thinking about it, you know, and all this time, these girls were suffering one generation after another, after another. And I just can't fathom I, I just can't allow myself to even think about how many are still in that situation, in gyms and and rinks, with parents who are who are 
pushing them and coaches who are abusing them. And, you know, it's, it, it's just, it is, you know, the only word is just absolute fury. And, and I still feel it. And I, I, I'm so glad, you know, that the doors are open now and they basically got rid of, in gymnastics anyway, they basically got rid of everybody and are starting over. <clears throat> and a new board and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, that's what was so demoralizing for me is all of that research and that work and, and the attention to it and none of it mattered. Thank you. I, I feel that for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's the, that book will be the best thing I ever do, you know? And I mean, every book pales in, in comparison to the, you know, the potential impact and, and some of the impact of it. Yet at the same time, you know, it's heartbreaking as well. Yeah, one of the things that I've found the most powerful about what's happened and is happening with gymnastics is the um, way that athletes have been able to support and validate each other um, through this and how that was a very slow, difficult process to get started. But then once it did, it started to snowball. Um, and a lot of the conversations that I've been having with athletes, especially, um, but really everybody in the system have touched on this question of like, what does it look like to really empower athletes to be the ones making decisions? And often there are sort of fairly token ways of doing that, but there's some, but what does it look like to really do that? Um, and I think sometimes that bumps up against both the, you know, the judged nature of the sport and the fact that so many of the athletes are young, that you, it's very difficult to do something like have a player's union. We don't have that in Olympic sports in the same way, but that there are people trying to question, you know, why can't athletes support each other in the way that where one person speaking out is at too, far too great of a risk, but together maybe people can. And so there are so many things that make that really difficult, but it's also where I see, um, you know, maybe the most potential for change. That's would be what I would, you know, bring from uh, the other types of organizing work that I've done in my life. But that kind of collective action is often, um, you know, when you feel powerless, that's often the most important thing that you can do. Yeah, and Simone Biles was, you know, uh, when talking about mental health and that, you know, she had the agency, you know, she said, I'm stepping away. This is not healthy for me. It was like, wow, now that really has an impact. And, you know, we're hearing through every sport, you know, I work for the San Francisco Giants. And I mean, now the Giants have, you know, two mental health psychologist and a psychiatrist and and it's just it's just normal now so what is the impact you know in in you know gymnastics and figure skating in the culture that that now is is out and on the table and expected 
you know, that, that there are professionals really looking out for these athletes. Caitlin, what were you going to um, say? I thought you, okay. Um, go ahead, Caitlin. I, I have thoughts just about something that you said previous, so I'll let Anna, please. I was going to go on to a, diff to a, a different question for you, so please go for it. Okay, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, just, just thinking um, about what I've been hearing, and um, I think that uh, something I've, I've thought about now as an adult is, is the independent nature of our sport and how even as a young woman, um, you're taught not to trust your colleagues, not to trust your training mates, not to trust mm -hmm. even your closest friends mm -hmm. in the sport because at the end of the day, they're your competitors. And um, I think that's a very toxic environment to grow up uh, to grow up in as, as a young woman. I mean, I, I only can put you know my gender experience in it, but um, to not believe that you're a community and that you're experiencing something similar. And that goes, you know, to speak on abuse, um, mental health, uh, menstrual health, women, women's issues. Um, I've heard about women having to go through even terminating pregnancies alone because they were afraid of mm -hmm. telling anyone for fear of it um, affecting their career or even just their standing in, in the school. And so um, I don't know any gymnasts personally, but I can't help but think that that is something similar, especially when you're vying against people to make a team, you know, an elite group of six or, or five uh, per quadrennial. Um, and so that's one way in which I, I think that we can be better is, is to come together as a community and say, we're all in this together. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, after I've retired, have I realized, oh, I have so much more in common with my competitors than I do different. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and now we're, we're here for each other. Uh, you know, it's a select, it's, it's a group, I think that have chosen to kind of bond mm -hmm. together, but, um, we're, we're, we're so much more available to each other now than we were before. And, and yet having that kind of, um, bond would have been such an asset mm. when we're going through, you know, the difficulties of elite sport. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I just think that, you know, that's one way that hopefully we can begin to um, re-educate youth is that, you know, you're not in this alone, even though you're on the ice alone at the end of the day. That's such an interesting point. Um, Lois, can we pop up the question from Sarah? Um, and I'm going to give you that question for Caitlin, and then I want to give a chance for sort of a any last last words, thoughts, wrap up um, sort of uh, points that we want to get to here as well. What do you wish to inspire in the current and next generation of athletes? Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I have to think about that one. Um, I, I think that, um, your experience is valid and it matters. I think that, uh, you know, win or lose, um, I think what this sport gives us should and can be beautiful. And 
um, if we can share our stories, I think we're going to be better for it. And um, a lot of a lot of what I hope to kind of leave as my legacy is is uh, surrounding the idea of identity on the ice, and that you know, as a competitor, you're so much stronger and have the ability to be actually better if you're your, if you really are yourself. And I think that has to do with safety. You know, I think when we talk about athletes performing at their best, if they're scared, if they are not well, they won't. And, um, you know, when I see an athlete that's happy and feels present with all of who they are, you know, it's hard to tell from the outside, but I think those are the ones that um, end up succeeding, ironically, more. Mm-hmm. Um, not, it's not ironic, you know, but like in our in our kind of classic way of thinking about training, it is. And uh, so that's what I hope to to leave is is um, is the idea that creating a safe environment, allowing athletes and just participants in skating whether that's um, an audience member, a coach, a skater, um, being able to be themselves fully on the ice is, is um, for me, a necessity. That's something that I hope to change and hope to inspire in the next generation. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Um, that's, uh, I know that we are already seeing your impact in those ways and that as you continue to, you know, to, to be yourself in all of the things that you do, but also to work with um, a younger generation, that that is going to come through. Um, Joan, did you want to um, give us any thing, last words of wrap up? You know, just listening to all of you and being part of this conversation is i mean frankly is just so much richer than you know i thought coming in because i don't you know think about my book that much and you know i know i was going to answer questions but this has been such a rich conversation and got me thinking about a lot of things that have nothing to do with gymnastics and figure skating and is about how crucial and essential it is to be part of a a team, to have your tribe. And my most recent book is about team chemistry and the science of it. And, And that's what it's all about. It's like, you know, we know we are better as a community than we are individually. And we touched on so many things today that that are exactly that, that, that just really raise the, um, you know, the, the, the conversation on everything, you know, and that's the, that is such the great thing about sports, right? Whether it's individual or team, because the individual always is a team. And, and some people say, well, you know, I did this on your own. We never do anything on our own ever in any part of our lives. <laughs> That is, that is meaningful, right? And this has been so meaningful to me, I have to tell you. And I've written so many notes. And so thank you, thank you so much for putting this out, out there in such a wise, a concrete way 
that, you know, we walk away today, hopefully, you know, anybody who listens to this, you know, you walk away, you know, just so much smarter and with more curiosity about, well, what is it going to take? How do we make all of this better? And, and, and also, you know, how do we celebrate what we do have and what, you know, what progress we have made? So I, I'm just really thrilled to have been a part of this. And I so much appreciate you inviting me and, and for embracing the book. I really appreciate that. Well, I'm very grateful to you for writing it as well as coming and having this conversation with us. I think I know that as I started to think and ask these questions that not just the stories you told, but the analysis that you put into it really helped to form how I've understood the dynamics that go behind so many of these questions that it's been very formative um, for me. Um, and so I'm just very grateful. Caitlin and Joan, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation um, today with us. Um, I will do the where you can follow the future of figure skating and I'm going to pass to Lois to tell you about what's coming up with anything GOE and other projects um, for the closeout. But um, this will go up um, as a podcast on the future of figure skating. You can find that on all of the platforms that podcasts are on. Um, it'll come out as episode 21. Um, and I'm also uh, would encourage people to listen to the uh, episode that I have coming out next week, which was with um, Rob Kohler, who's the director general of Global Athlete um, and is doing a lot of work around organizing athletes across the Olympic movement. And I think it would be an, a good, uh, an interesting counterpoint uh, and um, good uh, synthesis with this conversation. Um, but you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Future FS Podcast. And Lois? Yep. Uh, so you can obviously follow anything Dewey's on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Threads or TikTok. We're on pretty much every social media platform we can be. Um, we had an interview out just a few days ago with uh, Tara Prasad, which uh, is like the new going into detail, the first one of the season uh, that Anna did, um, which was a great interview. It, an amazing skater. Um, we have the season is just starting with the um, competitions now, so we'll have previews and things for uh, challenges and junior grand prix up on the website soon. Um, I don't know what else to say. Oh yeah, uh, Sarah has an interview with um, junior ice dancers uh, Ashley and Atoll uh, coming out. I think within the week, so that should be coming up on the website soon as well. And I'll be live from Cranberry Cup for anything GOE yes. in about a week and a half, which I'm excited about and also terrified that that means the new season is actually here. So <laughs> but thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Um, and especially thank you, Caitlin and Joan. Thanks for listening to this special book club episode. This also goes full circle for me as the one year anniversary of this podcast, which also fittingly began with an interview with Caitlin Weaver. I'm so blown away by the response this project has received and the generosity of so many amazing people who have shared their thoughts and hopes with me. Keep the ideas coming for more episodes. I'm looking forward to bringing in another year of conversation.
You can look at the show notes for this episode to see links to many of the guests' extra projects. You can follow Caitlin at KA2SH on Twitter and Instagram. Joan Ryan is on Twitter at Joan Ryan. And her website is joanryaninc.com. That's joanryaninc.com. You can follow Anything GOE on social media and find our latest interviews on YouTube and at anythinggoe.com. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. If you're appreciating the podcast, you can also support my work with a tip jar at futurefigureskating.pinecast.co. Remember to subscribe and review the Future of Figure Skating podcast on whatever platform you use and share it with your friends.